0: Hector said, My name is Mike Chang. I'm one of the pastors of North Shore Baptist Church. And so I bring greetings from North Shore Baptist Church. Um, I've enjoyed all the times that our churches have been able to worship together. And so it is uh, quite a joy for me to be here right now and to bring God's word to you. Uh, it's also a joy for me to preach for one of my former pastors. Uh, so much of what I know about pastoral ministry comes from uh, your pastor here. So I count it as the greatest privilege to be able to serve alongside him once more. Well, if you have your Bibles, please turn to the book of Colossians. Turn to Colossians chapter 1. And as you turn there, I want to tell you about an author by the name of Ernest Hemingway. Uh, Ernest Hemingway was famous for his short stories. Uh, Many of them are considered classics of American literature. And when he wrote these stories, he often wrote about the relationship between fathers and sons. In one particular story set in Spain, uh, he writes about a father and his teenage son, Paco. Now, Paco, which, by the way, was a fairly common name at the time, had a troubled relationship with his father. And as he grew older, their relationship grew worse and worse. Until one day, after disrespecting his father, uh, Paco ran away from home. Now, his father, seeking to reconcile, began a long journey in search of his lost and rebellious son. And his journey led him to the city of Madrid. And when he got to Madrid, he decided to put an ad in the local newspaper. And this is what the ad said. Dear Paco, meet me in front of my hotel tomorrow at noon. All is forgiven. I love you. Well, the next day, at noon, in front of his hotel, 800 boys named Paco showed up seeking forgiveness from their fathers. Now, what's interesting is that Hemingway seems to understand one of our most basic human needs. You see, he understood that human beings are desperately in need of forgiveness and reconciliation. We'll go ahead and turn to Colossians 1, verses 21 to 23. That's our text today, Colossians 1, verses 21 to 23. In this passage, you'll see that the world is in need of reconciliation. Reconciliation. But this reconciliation is greater than that which is between a father and a son. It's the reconciliation between fallen humanity and a holy God. Reading from Colossians 1, starting in verse 21. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. In order to present you holy and blameless and above approach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. Would you please pray with me? Our God and our Heavenly Father, we thank you that the Bible is the word of God and not the mere words of man. Lord, we have spent the better part of this week listening to man's voice, but now as we open your word, we desire to listen to your voice, to hear you speak. So Lord, would you open our eyes now to see wonderful things in your word. Help us now to exalt your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who died for us so that he might bring us to God. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, in this letter, Paul is addressing false teaching in the Colossian church. Uh, The false teachers had concluded that though Jesus was great, he wasn't sufficient. You see, the Colossians were not so much interested in rejecting Jesus, but they were wondering if Jesus was really enough. In other words, is Jesus sufficient for living the Christian life? That was the question. Now, in the previous passage, in verses 15 to 20, uh, Paul tells us about the supremacy of Christ. Uh, Jesus is supreme, he says, because he created all things, uh, he's the purpose of all things, and he sustains all things. He is supreme as the head of the church, and we also see that Jesus is the supreme reconciler. Uh, Jesus will reconcile all things in heaven and on earth. That's from verse 20. But at this point, the question we have to ask is this. How does God's plan to reconcile all things apply to us? right? How does God's plan to reconcile the entire universe apply to you and me? And so Paul will address this by highlighting four aspects of reconciliation. So first he talks about the necessity of reconciliation, and then the means of reconciliation. Third, the purpose of reconciliation. And fourth, The condition of reconciliation. So the necessity, the means, the purpose, and the condition of reconciliation. Okay, so first, the necessity. Uh, The necessity of reconciliation. Why do we need to be reconciled to God? So I have to be honest, there was a time when I didn't know what this word meant. Reconciliation. Uh, The word is used in many different contexts. right? It can be an accounting term or even a political term like when Congress reconciles a budget. But what I've come to learn is that biblically, reconciliation only has one meaning, and it has to do with being restored to a right relationship with God. Now, why is this necessary? Well, Paul says that the reason reconciliation is necessary is because of sin. Uh, He says that we were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. And so what he does here is he, he describes our condition before salvation. And he does this in three ways. First, he says that we were alienated. We were alienated from God. Now, to be alienated means to be uh, separated from or to be estranged from. It implies that uh, one person has offended another, and so therefore their relationship is broken. Now, some of you know what this is like personally, right? Right? you know what it's like to be estranged from someone. Perhaps you were once close to a friend or a family member, but now your relationship is broken. It's been fractured. You're like a stranger to them, and they're like a stranger to you. Now, of course, no one understood estrangement better than Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve were created in the image of God, but they were also created to be in communion with God. They had intimate, unbroken fellowship with their creator. But because of sin, they were cut off. They became strangers and enemies of God. And there was now this infinite chasm between them and God. Now, this estrangement, or this alienation, is then passed down to the rest of humanity. You see, Adam's alienation became our alienation. And we see this throughout the scriptures. Uh, The prophet Isaiah tells us that your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. And then in Ephesians 4.18, Paul says that unbelievers are darkened in their understanding and alienated from the life of God. So you see, Adam's alienation became our alienation, and as a result, every person comes into the world estranged from their creator. This is why you hear so many people say that they feel all alone despite having all the friends in the world. Right? Many people say that they feel lonely, uh, disconnected, and hopeless. And the reason they feel this way is because man senses his own alienation. You see, the source of all our alienation, including our alienation from one another, is our alienation from God. Like Adam, we were made to be in fellowship with God. But because of sin, we were separated from his presence, his blessings, and his love. And friends, when you're separated from God, you feel all alone. So this is one of the reasons why reconciliation is necessary. We were alienated from God. Now, Paul also says that we were hostile in mind. And so this means that we we're never neutral. You see, not only did we at one time reject God, we hated him. That's what it means to be hostile. Now, some of you are thinking, you know, I don't remember hating God when I was an unbeliever. I'm sure there are some people who hate God, but does every unbeliever hate God? Well, let's look at Romans chapter 8. I want to show you from Romans 8 that our hostility is universal. and I want to show you why our hostility is universal. So look at Romans 8, verses 7 and 8. It says, For the mind that is set on the flesh, that's the mind of an unbeliever, is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So I want you to see Paul's logic here. All right? Paul believes that there are two kinds of minds there's a mind that is set on the flesh, that's the mind of an unbeliever and a mind that is set on the spirit. That's the mind of a believer. And the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God because it never submits to God. So you see, our hostility has to do with our inability to submit. Here's the thing. Apart from grace, we can't obey God's commands. We don't love him, we don't worship him, and we're not concerned about his glory. Friends, this is what sin did to our nature. Sin rendered us unable to respond to God in any positive fashion. And so as a result, we were continually in opposition to God. We were hostile in mind. Okay, there's no such thing as a frenemy, all right? I don't know who came up with that word. Uh, That's someone who's both a friend and an enemy. There is no such thing with respect to God. Because you're either God's friend or you're God's enemy. And apart from Christ... We were enemies, hostile in mind. So our status is one of alienation. Our mindset is one of hostility. And then Paul says that we do evil deeds. And here, I think he points out the obvious. Evil people are in the habit of doing evil deeds, right? That's what we do. Apart from grace, we are bent towards evil. So cows moo, uh, dogs bark, Sinners sin. That's what we do. This is why we shouldn't be surprised when we hear about all the crime in our city. And this is why we shouldn't be surprised when our children misbehave. I think it's funny when parents, especially new parents, they're shocked when their kids are bad. Why are you surprised? Listen to what Jesus says in Mark chapter 7. He says, For from within, out of the heart of man comes what? Come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. Evil people are in the habit of doing evil deeds. And if you don't believe me, if you don't believe Jesus here in Mark chapter 7, well, just turn on the evening news. Fallen man is in the habit of doing evil deeds. So this is why reconciliation is necessary. We were enemies of God. uh, Enemies who were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds. And by the way, not only were we at enmity with God, but God was at enmity with us. You see, the hostility goes both ways. And on God's side, it comes in the form of his righteous wrath towards sin. So a few years ago, someone who was visiting our church, he asked me, Why are Christians so negative? Why do you guys talk about sin so much? Or things like wrath and hostility. You need to be more positive. And so my response was, well, you have to know the bad news before you can appreciate the good news. In fact, I don't think you can even understand the good news unless you first understand the bad news. And on top of that, the Bible tells us over and over again to remember who we were before coming to Christ. This is exactly what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2. He says, Remember, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world. In other words, remember the bad news. And look, I get it, this is difficult to hear, right? Let's be honest in our flesh. Who wants to be reminded that we were once God's enemies? And who wants to be reminded that our unbelieving friends and our unbelieving family members are still God's enemies? No one. Just like no one wants that call from the doctor with a bad diagnosis. But friends, that's the call, that's the news that we need to hear because without it, we'll never see our need for a savior. So here's the bad news. We have been alienated from the life of God. We are rebels who are under his wrath, and we deserve his judgment. But for those who are in Christ, for those who are Christians, that's who we once were. That's who we once were. So Paul will tell us who we are now, and he tells us how we got here. Point number two, the means of reconciliation. Point number two is the means of reconciliation. In verse 22, he says that sinners have been reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. So the means of reconciliation is nothing less than the death of Christ. Now, before I go through verse 22, let me give you a brief summary of the benefits of Jesus' death. You know, what Jesus did for us was so comprehensive. It's sort of like a diamond with its many sides. And so I think it's worth our time to review what Jesus did for us in dying on the cross. So let me give you four terms to consider Uh, if you're taking notes. I'm gonna read off each term and then I will define them twice. So I'm gonna read off each term and I'll define them twice. Here are the terms. Justification, redemption, propitiation, and reconciliation. Justification, redemption, propitiation, and reconciliation. So number one is justification. In justification, the sinner stands before God as the accused while God declares us righteous. The sinner stands before God as the accused while God declares us righteous. Romans three twenty three 23-24 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So number one is justification. Number two is redemption. In redemption, the sinner is a slave while God redeems us by the payment of a ransom. The sinner is a slave while God redeems us by the payment of a ransom. Ephesians 1 verse 7 says, In him, that's in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. So that's another benefit of the cross. In Christ we have redemption. Number 3 propitiation propitiation in propitiation the sinner is an object of wrath while god satisfies his wrath by pouring it upon his son the sinner is an object of wrath while god satisfies his wrath by pouring it upon his son 1 john 4:10 and this is love not that we have loved god but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins So number three is propitiation. And lastly, number four, reconciliation. Reconciliation. In reconciliation, the sinner is God's enemy while God makes us his friend. The sinner is God's enemy while God makes us his friend. So you see, in each of these four terms, the cross fulfills an aspect of human need. Right? We are the accused, we're slaves, we're objects of wrath, And we are God's enemies. And here in verse 22, well, Paul focuses on number four, the doctrine of reconciliation. Now, the word reconcile means to bring together two estranged parties. It means to bring about peace between two parties who are at war. And so the question is, how does God do this? Right? How does God bring about peace? Well, Paul says that we were reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. Now, there are two parts to this verse. First, notice that Paul goes out of his way to point out Jesus' physical body. Why does he do that? Well, I think it's because Paul wants the Colossians to remember that Jesus took on flesh. That in the incarnation, the Son of God took on a human nature. Okay, so let's remember that Jesus is one person with two natures. A human nature and a divine nature. And these two natures are united perfectly in the person of Christ. And so in his human nature, Jesus was like us in every way except without sin. Right? We can say that without denying his divinity. He was like us in every way except without sin. Now, the Colossians had a hard time with this. You see, the heresy in Colossae was a Christological heresy. Uh, The Colossians were denying both the divinity and the humanity of Christ. And so they had a hard time believing that reconciliation could happen through someone who looked just like them, as someone who lived and breathed and had flesh and blood. But Paul believes that the humanity of Christ is essential to understanding the gospel. Jesus came as the God-man so that he could be our mediator. 1 Timothy two, five says there is only one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Now, the second part of this verse says that not only are we reconciled in his body of flesh, but we're reconciled by his death. So Jesus took on flesh so that he could die in our place. Friends, Jesus died to take the punishment that we deserve. He died to bear on his body the sins of all who trust him. And as he hangs on that cross, Jesus was alienated, as it were, from the Father. Right? We see this so clearly when he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? At that very moment, Jesus took on the full force of the wrath of God. He who knew no sin became sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. On the cross our sins were imputed to Christ, he was crushed for those sins, and his righteousness was imputed to us. And in doing so, in doing so, Jesus takes holy God and sinful man and he brings us together. He removes the enmity between us. He restores us. He reconciles us. Friends, God has opened the way for those who have been separated from him to come back to him through the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the means of reconciliation. Okay, so I want you to think about the story of the prodigal son. Uh, think about the son who was alienated from his father, uh, the son who squandered his inheritance, and he lived the life of sin. And I want you to think about how one day, after coming to an end of himself, uh, the son decided to come home. Uh, he knew that he had sinned against his father, and that he was no longer worthy to be called his son. But while he was still far off, and I want you to see this, because I want you to see the heart of the Father in reconciliation. While he was still far off, the Father sees him, he comes running to him, and weeping with joy, he threw his arms around him and welcomed him home. This is what he said. He said, for this son of mine who was dead is now alive, who was lost and is now found. Brothers and sisters, because of Christ, prodigals can come home. Because of Christ, the Father welcomes us home. And we who were once his enemies can become sons and daughters of the living God. The Father gave up his Son so that we could be sons and daughters of God. Friends, think upon the love of the Father in reconciling sinners to himself. Well, this takes us to point number three. Point number three is the purpose of reconciliation. Reconciliation. Point number three is the purpose of reconciliation. In verse 22, Paul says that reconciliation has a purpose. And that purpose is to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. In other words, Jesus died to make us holy. So I want you to think about this, that one day Jesus will return. And when he returns, he will present you to the Father And when he presents you to the Father, on that day, you will be truly and completely holy. Not only that, you will be truly and completely blameless, and you will be truly and completely above reproach. Ephesians 5 tells us that Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or blemish. Jesus died to make us holy. He died to make us holy on the day of judgment. But in a very real sense, Jesus also died to make us holy now. The word holy means to be set apart or to be sanctified. And in First Corinthians 1 verse 2, Paul says that Christians are sanctified in Christ Jesus. Right? Notice that he doesn't just say Christians will be sanctified. He says that Christians are sanctified. So you see, that's what a Christian is. Someone who is set apart or sanctified for God's purposes. So Jesus died to make us holy now. Jesus also died to make us blameless now. Uh, Let's let's stay in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 30 says that you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness. Now, what does it mean that Jesus became to us righteousness? Well, it means that since his righteousness is imputed to us, then we are truly Blameless. Now, Jesus died so that we could be blameless. And then finally, Jesus also died so that we might be above reproach. Now, to be above reproach means to be innocent in the eyes of others. It means that no one can bring a charge against you and that your life and your reputation is an example worth following. Now, as most of you know, being above reproach is one of the qualifications for being an elder. Right? We know this from 1 Timothy 3 and Titus chapter 1. But being above reproach is also something that every Christian should strive for. Listen to what John MacArthur says about being above reproach. He says, The reason being above reproach is called for at the pastoral level is that pastors are to be an example for others to follow, which means that although being above reproach is mandatory for an elder, it should also be the goal of every single Christian. Jesus died so that we might be above reproach. Friends, God doesn't just save us from hell. He saves us for holiness. He reconciles us for holiness, even now. That's the purpose of reconciliation. And now, on to my last point point number four the condition of reconciliation. The condition of reconciliation. Verse 23 says If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting, from the hope of the gospel. So here, Paul gives us a condition. And the condition is this. We'll be presented holy and blameless and above reproach if we continue in the faith. Now, faith here is the faith once delivered to the saints or faith in Christ. So only those who continue to place their faith in Christ will be saved on the last day. The author of Hebrews puts it this way, he says, For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. In other words, if we continue in the faith. And friends, rest assured, all true Christians will continue to the end. This is the doctrine of perseverance. The doctrine of perseverance says that all true believers will persevere to the end through the gracious and preserving power of God. John Murray, in his book, Redemption Accomplished and Redemption Applied, says this. He says, All those elected by the Father, redeemed by the Son, and regenerated by the Spirit will be brought to salvation on the last day through the sovereign grace of God. All who are called, chosen, and converted by God will be kept by God. Amen. However, The doctrine of perseverance is not the same as what some people call once saved, always saved. You see, many people believe that they're saved because they once made a profession of faith. And that profession covers you no matter what happens afterwards. So it's sort of like this. You made a profession and now God is stuck with you. But nothing could be further from the truth. Spurgeon once said that there's a difference between someone who professes faith and someone who actually possesses faith. And one difference is your continuance. You see, all true Christians will continue in the faith. But if you don't continue in the faith, then that means you were never saved. You have not been reconciled to God. And you will not be presented holy and blameless and above reproach. And then Paul adds this. He says, those who continue in the faith must do so by being stable and steadfast. Now, these two words, the words stable and steadfast, are usually used to describe the foundation of a building. And so, just as a building is grounded in stable foundation, Christians must also be grounded in the gospel. So, you see, it's not enough to say that, that you still believe the gospel, but we must continue to be grounded in the gospel. So this is what Paul is saying to the Colossians. Keep the gospel central in your life. Make sure your foundation is Jesus. Don't listen to the false teachers who seek to undermine the gospel by questioning the sufficiency of Christ. Because if you lose confidence in Christ, you're not continuing in the faith. Be stable and steadfast. And don't shift from the hope that we have in the gospel. That is the condition of reconciliation. So let me ask you today, how are you continuing? How is your walk with the Lord? You know, sometimes as Christians, we place so much emphasis on how our Christian lives began that we never ask ourselves how we're continuing. So I'm at the stage in my life where I can't remember when my children were born. Uh, I can't remember any of their birthdays. Uh, I get them all mixed up. So this past winter, I had to take my daughter Lucy, who's three years old, to the doctor's office by myself. And you know it's a sad state of affairs in our household when things are left up to me. And so as I got to the doctor's office, uh, the receptionist asked me, date of birth? What is your daughter's date of birth? And so I look straight at her and I say, I don't know. I can't remember. But I'll tell you what I do know. I know how they're doing now. I know where they are in their growth as children and in their discipleship in our family. You see, as Christians, we need to know how we began. Right? We need to know how and when and how the Lord saved us. Um, We need to remember how we went public with our faith in baptism. That's important. But I think it's just as important to know how you're continuing. So how are you continuing? How is your walk with the Lord? Because your continuance is evidence of your salvation. And by the way, I think one of the signs of continuance is whether or not you are helping someone else grow in their faith. Okay, so here's my argument. If you are stable and steadfast in the gospel, then you ought to be helping someone else be stable and steadfast in the gospel. So there's a preacher by the name of Vodi Bokum who told a story about how he went to one of the older men in his church, and he asked him to disciple one of the younger men. And so the older gentleman had been a Christian for about 30 years. And the younger guy was someone who was recently saved. So he asked the older guy to disciple the younger guy. But this is what, how the older guy responds. He says, nope, I can't do it. I can't disciple. I'm not ready. I still consider myself to be a baby Christian. So this is a problem, isn't it? Right? You have a Christian here who's been saved for 30 years, and yet he still considers himself to be a baby. I mean, just imagine that, right? A 30-year-old baby. What if this happened at work? So let's say you've been at a job for about 30 years, and your boss asks you to train someone new. He says, "This is I have a new guy. It's his first day. I'd like you to show him the ropes. And you respond by saying, nope, I can't do it. I'm not ready I'm still a baby. You would be fired. I think and I think you should be fired. So let me ask you are you in some way shape or form helping someone else grow? And if the answer is no, then let me ask you in what sense are you stable and steadfast? How are you continuing I'd like to close with two short points of application, two ways I think we can apply this to our lives. Application number one is simply be reconciled to God. Be reconciled to God. So if you're here today and you're not a Christian, you should know that you have not been reconciled to God. And since you have not been reconciled to him, then he is your enemy and he is angry with you. You know, so many people have a hard time with this, right? They have a hard time believing that a loving God would ever be angry. Well, if that's you, I plead with you to open your eyes. Open your eyes to see the gravity and the heinousness of your sin. Open your eyes to see the dignity of the one whom you sin against. You see, God is glorious. He is holy. That means he's completely separate from sin. He can't tolerate sin at all. So this means your sin is a big deal. A few months ago, we sang a song at our church which puts this perfectly. It says this. Ye who think of sin but lightly, nor suppose the evil great, here view its nature rightly. Here its guilt may estimate. Friends, by God's grace, see how great an offense your sin is against the Holy God. Because here's the truth. You've been alienated from God. You are at enmity with Almighty God, and he is rightfully angry with you. And so I plead with you, repent of your sins and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus, the God-man, came to earth. He lived a perfect life. He took our place on the cross. He died for sinners, sinners like me and sinners like you. And he rose from the grave. So I plead with you, repent, trust him, and be reconciled to God. So application number one is be reconciled to God. Application number two, be a messenger of reconciliation. Be a messenger of reconciliation. So those who have been reconciled must be messengers. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, reconciliation comes through faith in a message. It doesn't come through social reform, and it doesn't come by passing new laws or by any other means other than faith in a message. And the message of reconciliation is the gospel. So preach the gospel. Biblical preaching, biblical proclamation, biblical evangelism. Share the gospel with others. Second Corinthians chapter five, Paul says, says this about his own ministry. He says, "All this is from God who, through Christ, reconciled us to Himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation." That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation." Now Paul here is talking about his own ministry. Right, Paul has been given the ministry of reconciliation and he's been given, entrusted with the message of reconciliation. But as Christians, we also ought to be messengers of that message. You see, it's easy for us to be distracted, right? to be distracted by other causes or other agendas. But our agenda is a gospel agenda. We have the good news of reconciliation. So let us share the gospel with others. So be reconciled to God and be a messenger of reconciliation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this precious gift, for the gift of reconciliation. We thank you that you did what we could not do for ourselves by removing the enmity between us through the death of your son. God, may we live our lives as the reconciled one, preaching the message of reconciliation, that your son might receive all the glory to his name. It's in his name we pray. Amen.